0: Section 26 of The Lives of the Queens of England, volume eight, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Braganza, chapter two, part three. The fire of London, which broke out on the 2nd of September at the corner of Thames Street, in a baker's shop full of faggots near a row of wooden storehouses filled with pitch, tar, oakum, and other combustibles, was so clearly the effect of accident that it would be unfair to impute it to the evil devices of a foreign power or to the frenzy of fanatics of either of the non-conforming creeds, who were accused by vulgar prejudice of having caused this dreadful calamity, which was predicted by the Puritans ten years before it happened. This conflagration, says Evelyn, was so universal and the people so astonished that from the beginning. I knew not by what despondency or fate. They hardly stirred to quench it, so that there was nothing heard or seen, but crying out and lamentation and running about like distracted creatures. All the sky was of a fiery aspect, like the top of a burning oven, and the light seemed for above forty miles round for many nights, God grant that mine eyes may never behold the light, who now saw above ten thousand houses all in one flame. The noise and cracking and thunder of the impetuous flames, the shrieking of the women and children, the hurry of the people, the fall of towers, houses and churches, was like a hideous storm, and the air all about so hot and inflamed, that at the last one was not able to approach it. The fire raged for four days. And all that time, the king and the Duke of York exerted themselves in the most energetic manner, even laboring in person and being present to command, order, reward, and encourage the workmen. It was through the personal activity and presence of mind of the Duke of York in causing the houses to be blown up that the beautiful old temple church was saved and the fire stopped. The Tower and Westminster Abbey were saved by the same precautions on the part of the King, but it was not till the 7th of September that the conflagration was extinguished. The King, who only appeared to advantage in seasons of danger and difficulty, displayed the most paternal care for the homeless sufferers, and exerted himself to obtain for them a temporary shelter in the villages round London, and causing tents and huts to be erected for them. They were also provided with bread and coals at the expense of the government, the extensive charities of the Crown during the two unprecedented seasons of public misery. The plague and the general destitution that succeeded the fire ought not to be forgotten when the extravagant expenditure of Charles II is so frequently repeated. His great forbearance, with regard to the collection of the supplies that had been voted by Parliament in those disastrous years, ought also to be remembered. The sums were voted undoubtedly in large figures, but the monies received were quite another thing. The want of means to pay the seamen led the king to the fatal economy of laying up his ships, against the earnest advice of his brother, the Duke of York, who told him that he would incur the danger of losing, by that means, the sovereignty of the seas. The attack of the Dutch on the ships at Chatham too well verified the prediction of the royal admiral. Evelyn presented the king on the 13th of September with a survey of the ruins of London and a plan for a new city with a discourse upon it. Whereupon, says he, his majesty sent for me into the queen's bedchamber, her majesty and the Duke only being present. They examined each particular, and discoursed on them for nearly an hour, seeming to be extremely pleased with what I had so early thought upon. The queen was now in her cavalier riding habit, hat and feather, and horseman's coat, to take the air. This fashion was not introduced by Catherine of Braganza, but by two of her pretty maids of honor, some months before, of whose appearance, in this equestrian garb, Pepys thus quaintly speaks. I saw the fine ladies in the long gallery at Whitehall, in coats and doublets, just for all the world like mine, buttoned up at the breast, and they wore periwigs and hats, so that only for a long petticoat, draggling under their men's coats, no one would take them for women, which was an odd sight, and a sight that did not please me. It was Mrs. Wells, and another fine lady I saw thus attired. The Queen herself had a great wish to introduce a very different style for the skirts of the dresses, liking mightily, as Lady Cartier told Pepys, to have the feet seen. Which leads to the conclusion that, like most of her country women, Catherine of Braganza had small, well-turned feet. But it was in vain that she occasionally exhibited herself in short petticoats. She found few imitators. It is not royalty but beauty that sets the fashion. The reigning bells of the court were tall, graceful women, and as long as they wore flowing draperies, all other ladies did the same in the hope of looking like them. About the same time, Charles II, at the suggestion of Evelyn, endeavored to change the theatrical style of dress worn by his courtiers for a more sober costume. He assumed it himself and so did a few of those who wished to please him, but his fashion was soon abandoned for the all-prevailing modes of France. It was a comely and manly habit, says Evelyn, too good to hold, it being impossible for us, in good earnest, to leave the monsieur's vanities long. The court wore black many months for Queen Catherine's mother, only having leave to wear silver and white lace for one day, on which a splendid ball was given at Whitehall, to celebrate Her Majesty's birthday. Pepys, who enjoyed the satisfaction of climbing up to a loft, where with much trouble, he contrived to look down on the gay scene, gives the following particulars. Anon the house grew full, and the candles light, and the king and queen and ladies sat, It was indeed a glorious sight to see Mrs. Stuart in black and white lace, and her head and shoulders dressed with diamonds, only the queen none, and the king in his rich vest of some rich silk and silver trimming. The Duke of York and all the other dancers wore cloth of silver. Presently, after the king was come in, he took the queen, and about fourteen more couple there were, and began the brantle. After enumerating many of the courtly dancers, he says, They were all most excellently dressed in rich petticoats and gowns and diamonds and pearls, after the Brantles a courant, and now and then a French dance, but that was so rare that the courants grew tiresome, and I wish it done, only Mrs. Stewart danced mighty fine, and many French dances, especially one the king called the new dance, which was very pretty. But upon the whole matter, the business of the dancing itself was not extraordinarily pleasing, about twelve at night it broke up. The commencement of the year 1667 found the Queen ill at ease. The King's passion for the fair Stuart, increasing with its hopelessness, he became restless, melancholy and thoughtful, and was supposed to meditate making a desperate attempt to obtain her in the way of marriage. Dark hints and rumors of a divorce from Queen Catherine, on the plea of barrenness, began to be whispered in the court and city. That political busybody, the Earl of Bristol, sent two friars to Portugal after the death of the queen mother, Dona Luisa, to endeavor to collect something that might be construed into presumptive evidence of her incapacity for children, although the king honestly said that it was impossible to proceed on those grounds, as to his certain knowledge, Her Majesty had more than once been in the way to be a mother. The enemies of Clarendon were more determined than ever to raise a popular cry against him on account of the childless marriage of the sovereign, since his eldest son, Lord Cornbury, had been appointed Lord Chamberlain to the Queen. Catherine considering herself bound in honor to befriend, as far as her little power went, the family of a minister whom she supposed to be persecuted on her account, the ribald witlings of the court, introduced her name into the doggerel pasquinades with which the chancellor was now assailed, on one occasion, they painted a gibbet on his gate with the following couplet. Three sights to be seen, Dunkirk, Tangier, and a barren queen. Another epigram, the acknowledged composition of one of Charles's profligate companions, ran thus. God bless Queen Kate, our sovereign's mate of the royal house of Lisbon, but the devil take hide and the bishop beside who made her bone of his bone these ribald rhymes were naturally associated with the supposed wish of the king to obtain a release from his nuptial plight to Catherine of braganza for the purpose of wedding a lady more agreeable to his present inclination all the world said this was his lovely and fascinating kinswoman francis stuart his tempters knowing his weakness daily urged him to imitate the example of henry the eighth and contract a more agreeable marriage if we may believe the assertion of burnet charles actually consulted dr sheldon the archbishop of canterbury on the possibility of obtaining a divorce from the queen sheldon requested time to consider the matter and having ascertained that the king contemplated a second marriage with francis stuart he informed clarendon It is said the enamored monarch's project was traversed by his premier, encouraging the Duke of Richmond, who was desperately in love with the fair object of his sovereign's preference, to marry her clandestinely and carry her off from the court. The fair Stuart had, it seems, perceived the impropriety of which she had been guilty in permitting the homage of the king, and in the hope of putting an end to the perilous terms in which they then stood, she had declared that she would marry any honorable gentleman who was worth 1,500 pounds per annum. The courtiers, however, stood aloof, none venturing to enter the lists in rivalry to the king. At length, her cousin Charles, Duke of Richmond and Lennox, came forward as a candidate for her hand. The king showed the most decided anger and forbade either party to think of such presumption. The fair steward then threw herself at the feet of the queen, and with many tears implored her forgiveness for the uneasiness her past folly and thoughtlessness had caused her, and implored her protection. Catherine was too amiable to reproach her she had the goodness to permit her to be constantly in her presence, and it is supposed she lent her and the Duke of Richmond facilities for their marriage and escapade. The whole blame was, however, charged on Clarendon by the infuriated king, who from that moment pursued him with vindictive hatred. Nor could the luckless minister's most earnest protestations that he knew nothing of the intention of the lovers to act in defiance of the royal prohibition, satisfy his majesty of his innocence. After the marriage of the fair Stuart, nothing more was said, for a considerable time, of a divorce between the king and queen. They danced together with their great nobles and ladies at a splendid masked ball in the theater of the palace, April 18th, 1667. The king celebrated the festival of the garter on St. George's Day that spring, with a solemnity of observance worthy of the age of chivalry, and the illustrious founder of the order. This commemoration was attended with all the religious ceremonies of the institution, even that of the sovereign and his knights offering at the altar. They then proceeded to the banqueting hall at the palace of Whitehall, where they dined in their robes and insignia. The King sat on an elevated throne at the end at a table alone. The Knights at a table at the right hand, all the length of the room over against them, a cupboard of rich gilded plate at the lower end, the music on the balusters above, wind music, trumpets, and kettle-drums. The King was served by the Lords and Pensioners who brought up the dishes about the middle of the feast. The Knights drank the King's health, and the King drank theirs. The trumpets sounded, and the tower guns were fired. The queen came in at the banquet, but only as a spectator, for she did not sit, but stood at the king's left all the time. The cheer was extraordinary, each night having forty dishes to his mess. The room was hung with the richest tapestry. In conclusion, the banqueting stuff was flung about the room profusely, says our author, who confesses that he made a hasty retreat when that sport began, which appears to have been showers of cakes, sweetmeats, confites, and fruit, for the benefit of the spectators, and to make a scramble among them. Such merry conclusions to the royal banquets were among the usages of the good old times, when the kings and queens of England lived in public, and any of their loyal lieges of decent appearance and behavior, who could squeeze through the ever-open doors of the palace, were free to enter the banqueting hall and see them take their meals, a custom which ended with the expulsion of the Stuart dynasty. Evelyn records frequent instances of Charles the Second's familiar converse with him on literary and scientific subjects on these occasions, and mentions, with some satisfaction, that the first time he tasted pineapple was a piece which the king cut for him from his own plate, with that peculiar graciousness of manner which won all hearts, and made even moralists and philosophers forget the many faults which tarnished his endearing qualities. One day the witty Tom Killigrew told the king, that matters were in a bad state, but there was a way to mend all. There is, pursues he. An honest, able man I could name, that if your majesty would employ and command to see things well executed, all things would soon be mended. And this is one Charles Stuart, who now spends his time as if he had no employment. But if you would give him this employment, he were the fittest man in the world to perform it. On another occasion, the king, speaking of the Duke of York being mastered by his wife, compared him to the character of the henpecked husband in the play of Episcene or the Silent Woman, and said to some of his boon companions that he would go no more abroad with this Tom Otter. Sir, asked Killigrew dryly, which is the best for a man to be, a Tom Otter to his wife or to his mistress? There was no hitting off this home thrust, for the manner in which the king was raided and reviled by the imperious Lady Castlemaine rendered him the laughing stock of the whole court. They had lately had a fierce quarrel about the king sending the Duke of Buckingham to the tower for sundry misdemeanors, when she used such violent language that the king was at last provoked so far to tell her, she was a jade that meddled with things she had nothing to do with. She retorted by calling him a fool telling him that if he were not a fool, he would not suffer his business to be carried on by fools that did not understand them and cause his best subjects and those best able to serve him to be imprisoned. In consequence of her importunity and his submissive behavior, the king released Buckingham and took him into favor. One of Buckingham's offenses was having employed a man to cast the king's nativity. This he contrived to lay on his sister, the Duchess Dowager of Richmond, who had been one of the king's playmates in infancy, and for whom he knew Charles ever entertained a brotherly regard. Buckingham employed his powers as a buffoon for the king's diversion and successfully laughed away the last spark of better feeling that had lingered round his heart. As the unprincipled leader of the corrupt ministry that rose into power on the fall of Clarendon through the patronage of Lady Castlemaine, Buckingham was the avowed enemy of the queen, of whom he was perpetually urging the king to rid himself, if not by divorce, by means still more questionable. If we may credit the assertions of so notoriously false a witness, as Bishop Burnet, Buckingham proposed to the king, that if he would give him leave, he would steal the queen away, and send her to a plantation, where she should be well and carefully looked to, and never heard from any more. But it should be given out that she had deserted, and that it would fall in with some principles, to carry on an act for a divorce, grounded upon the pretense of a willful desertion. It required no very remarkable exercise of consciousness to induce the king, unprincipled as he was, to revolt from a project of which the atrocity was only equalled by its absurdity. Sir Robert Murray told me, pursues Burnett, that the King himself rejected this with horror. He said it was a wicked thing to make a poor lady miserable only because she was his wife and had no children by him, which was no fault of hers. Buckingham next suggested that her majesty's confessor should be dealt with to persuade her to retire into a convent on which grounds the Parliament would readily grant the king a divorce. Charles gave in to this scheme, but Catherine loved him too fondly to part from him voluntarily. She said she had no vocation for a religious life. The evil counselors, by whom the sovereign's bad passions were flattered and cherished, did not scruple to whisper the possibility of persuading his Parliament to make it lawful for him to marry a new wife before he had got rid of his first and a reverend divine, no other than the far-famed Gilbert Burnett, afterwards Bishop of Salisbury, was found capable of using his pen in vindication of this iniquitous doctrine. He wrote successively two treatises entitled, Dr. Gilbert Burnett's Solution of Two Cases of Conscience, One Touching Polygamy, The Other Divorce, and What Scripture Allows in Those Cases. It is needless to comment on the base hypocrisy of affecting to search scripture as an excuse for vice. These polluted shafts were aimed at the innocent queen, at the suggestion, it is presumed, of Buckingham and Lauderdale. It was expected that they would have obtained the reward of a rich bishopric for the writer, but Charles despised both the adviser and the advice, and when Burnet, some years afterwards, having joined the opponents of the court, in consequence of being deprived of his office in the chapel royal, wrote him a letter of remonstrance on his immoral way of life. He treated him with the most cutting contempt. Charles endured reproof patiently from men whose principles he respected. When the excellent and consistent Bishop Ken gave him a severe exhortation on his wicked life, he did not treat that upright man with the contumely he offered to the author of Two Cases of Conscience. While all these dark plots were in agitation against the queen, she astonished everyone by entering into some of the giddy revelries of the madcaps of the court. Masquerading was then the rage, not merely masked balls in palaces and theaters, but that sport which prevails during carnivals and other seasons of public license. The king and queen and all the courtiers went about masked in separate parties in quest of adventures, so disguised that, without being in the secret, no one could distinguish them. They were carried about in hackney chairs, entered houses where lights and music gave indications that merrymakings were going on, and danced about with the wildest frolic. Once the queen got separated from her party, and her chairman, not knowing her, went away and left her alone. She was much alarmed and returned to Whitehall in a hackney coach, or according to others, in a cart. The Earl of Manchester, Charles's Lord Chamberlain, being well aware that Her Majesty was surrounded by spies and enemies, who were eagerly watching to take advantage of the slightest indiscretion into which she might be betrayed, to form accusations against her as a pretense for a divorce, honestly told her that it was neither decent nor safe for her to go about as she had done of late. Burnett says, He had been alarmed by the reports of Buckingham's evil designs against her, which had got abroad and wished to warn her of her danger. Early in the year 1668, the news arrived in England that the Cortes had sworn fealty to Don Pedro, Catherine's younger brother, and that there was every appearance of his being quietly established on the throne, from which his party had deposed the imbecile King Alfonso. Queen Catherine was so passionately interested in all that concerned her country and family that she took possession of the ambassador's report to the British cabinet of these affairs and the Earl of Arlington, when he communicates the event to Sir William Temple, says, There are other particulars in my letter which shall be transcribed for you tonight if I can get the letter out of the Queen's hands. A last effort to obtain the arrears of Catherine's portion had been made by Arlington in the preceding year, but apparently as fruitlessly as those that had preceded it, the long struggle with Spain and the subsequent civil war between the rival brothers Alfonso and Pedro had deprived Portugal of the power to make good the pecuniary engagements of the queen mother in Catherine's behalf. The reappearance of the beautiful Duchess of Richmond in the court as a bride was one of the events of the season. She had steadily refused to hold any communication with the king or to receive his visits, but expressed a wish to be permitted to kiss the hand of her royal mistress, on her elevation by marriage to so high a rank in the British nobility. All eyes were, of course, on her and the king, whose passion was apparently unsubdued, but she conducted herself with the dignified decorum of a virtuous matron. Rumor was, nevertheless, busy on the subject, as we find by the following mysterious passage in one of Charles's letters to his beloved sister Henrietta, Duchess of Orleans, who had alluded to something she had heard on the subject. You were misinformed in your intelligence concerning the Duchess of Richmond. If you were as well acquainted with a little fantastical gentleman called Cupid as I am, you would neither wonder nor take ill any sudden changes which do happen in the affairs of his conducting. But in this matter, there is nothing done in it. The Duchess of Richmond and her lord were then living in great splendour at Somerset House, the dower palace of the Queen Mother. The Duchess fell ill of the smallpox. The King's anxiety about her conquered all fears of infection, and he paid her several visits which, as she was the wife of a nobleman so nearly allied to the throne, he had the pretext of a royal etiquette for doing, nor could she or the duke refuse to admit him into her sick chamber. That such a prince as Charles the Second should wish to come at such a time would appear a proof of the strength of his attachment to his fair kinswoman. She recovered, but one of her eyes was injured, and she looked ill for a long time. The queen, who knew she could rely on her virtue, appointed her one of the ladies of her bedchamber. The king was, nevertheless, so transported by his passion for her, that one Sunday, when he had ordered his guards and coach to be ready to take him into the park, he suddenly got into a private boat, with a single pair of oars, all alone, and went by water to Somerset House, where, the garden door not being open, he climbed over the wall to visit her apparently with the intention of taking her by surprise. The particulars of the reception given him by the fair Duchess are not recorded, yet her general conduct was so chastely correct as a wife that there can be no doubt of its being a spirited repulse charles was more than usually complacent at this time to his queen with whom he supped every night with apparent pleasure and appearing otherwise mightily reformed from which an inference may be drawn that the influence of the duchess of richmond was very differently exercised from that of the infamous castlemaine all talk of a divorce had been suddenly stopped by the delusive hopes which had again flattered the queen of bringing an heir to England. And these, although destined to end as before, probably assisted this ill-treated princess to retain her position as queen consort, in spite of the intrigues of Buckingham and Burnet to have her supplanted. It was also said that Lady Castlemaine unexpectedly, but prudently, declared against the divorce, recollecting that it was impossible for the king to marry her, and dreading the probable influence of a young queen over his mind. Buckingham revenged himself on her for crossing his policy by playing off the two comic actresses, Nell Gwynne and Maul Davies, against her. The king had presented the latter with a diamond ring worth 700 pounds, in token of his approbation of her dancing, and it was noticed that when she came on after the play in the theater at Whitehall to dance her jig, the queen would not stay to see it. Evelyn mentions seeing Lady Castlemaine at one of the mass at court a few months before, blazing with diamonds to the value of at least 40,000 pounds, far outshining the queen. This rapacious woman is said to have devoured the almost incredible sum of 500,000 pounds, Charles finally gratified her pride by creating her Duchess of Cleveland, with reversion to her eldest son by him, to whom he gave the name of Fitzroy. The neglect with which the Queen was treated on her account was not confined to the courtiers. Goodman, the player and theatrical manager at the King's house, who for some of his evil exploits had very recently escaped the gallows, refused to have the stage curtain drawn up, or to allow the play to commence, because the Duchess of Cleveland, who bestowed on him some of her infamous patronage, had not arrived. Is my Duchess come? asked he, when told that the Queen was waiting for the performance. Fortunately, his Duchess made her appearance, and her royal mistress no longer sat waiting her leisure. Queen Catherine delighted in music, and appears to have been the first patroness of the Italian school of singing. She had a concert of these vocalists on the Thames, under her balcony at Whitehall Palace, September 30th, when, "'It being a most summer-like day, and a fine, warm evening,' says Pepys. "'The Italians came in a barge under the leads before the Queen's drawing room, and so the Queen and ladies went out, and heard them for more than an hour, and the singing was very good together.' But yet there was but one voice that did appear considerable, and that was Signor Ioanni. And here, pursues he, I saw Mr. Sidney Montague kiss the Queen's hand, who was mightily kind to him. This gentleman was one of Lord Sandwich's family, and to all of that name, Catherine, as far as her power went, continued to show her friendship. Their Majesty spent the month of October at Audley End, Euston, and Newmarket this year the foreign ambassadors, the Privy Council, and all the court accompanied them on their autumnal progress. They returned to Whitehall for the celebration of the Queen's birthday in November. This was the usual commencement of the gay season in London, which closed a few days after the 29th of May, the anniversary of King Charles's birth and restoration. Confident expectations were entertained in the spring of 1669 that the Queen was about to give an heir to England. Pepys records that he saw her on the 19th of May at dinner with the King, in her own apartment at Whitehall, in a white pinner, a loose wrapping gown, such as now termed a paywar, in which simple garb, he says, she looked handsomer than in full dress, and adds, that her appearance was such as to confirm the general report, and the hopes that were entertained at that period, she was taken, however, so suddenly ill on the 26th, as to send for Mrs. Dunn and another of her women in great haste, from a dinner party at chaffinch's apartments, and considerable alarm prevailed on her account. In a few hours she was better, and Lord Arlington writes to Sir William Temple on the 1st of June. I cannot end this letter without telling you that the Queen is very well, and gives us every day cause to rejoice more and more. God grant that it have its effects accordingly to make us all happy. Six days afterwards, the king communicates his disappointment to his sister, the Duchess of Orleans, with this remark, that there had been no accident to cause it. Charles, now despairing of a family by Catherine, listened with more complacency than ever to the project of obtaining the liberty of seeking a younger and more fruitful wife, by means of a parliamentary divorce, About this time, Lord Ruse, having convicted his wife of adultery, moved a bill in the House of Peers for dissolving the tie, including leave to marry another wife. The Duke of Buckingham supported the bill with all the interest of his faction. The Duke of York opposed it, having all the bishops on his side except Cozens and Wilkin. The controversy was carried on with great heat, And the king took the opportunity of entering the house in his ordinary dress, and seating himself on the throne, listened to the proceedings with eager interest, declaring that it was as good as a play. The bill passed, and his majesty was urged by the base junta, by whom he was surrounded, to make it the precedent for a bill to dissolve his marriage with the queen, as regarding the legality of marrying another wife, for the rectitude of Catherine's conduct had been such, that no one dared even to breathe an insinuation of disloyalty against her. But either Charles had never seriously entered into this iniquitous design, or his conscience would not permit him to carry it through, for when the time came within three days of that appointed by the Confederates for bringing it before the house, he told the infamous Bab May, who was the tool chosen by Buckingham to conduct the business, that he must let the matter alone as it would not do, to the extreme annoyance of that person who had taken infinite pains in preparing those who were to manage the debate. In other words, he thought he had offered sufficient bribes to secure a majority for the divisions on the anticipated readings of the bill. End of section 26.